you can probably guess from the songs we've been singing, the things that have already been said, that this morning we're going to be talking about the end. The coming of the kingdom of God. Who gets in and who doesn't? And some of the more observant of you this week will have noticed that this week no one got in. To the baseball hall of fame, that is. Now, that fact that no one got into the baseball hall of fame this week is significant. Because as it turns out, getting into heaven and getting into the baseball hall of fame have a lot in common. The New York Times called the rejection of Bonds, Barry Bonds and Clemens, Roger Clemens, on this year's ballot as, and I quote, the most resounding referendum yet on the legacy of steroids in baseball. Now, for those of you who aren't fans, those of you who don't know who Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens are, and you can sort of be forgiven for that. um, for For those of you that are not fans, what you need to know is that Bonds and Clemens are perhaps the most decorated, the most successful hitter and pitcher, respectively, in the entire history of baseball. And yet neither of them even came close to the 75% vote that's needed to get into the Baseball Hall of Fame. As the New York Times noted, it turns out it's not just the numbers that you put up. But it's how you did it that matters with the voters. Integrity, sportsmanship, character, not just numbers are what it takes to get in to the Hall of Fame. Now, this morning, we're concluding our series on what Jesus said as we take up the last part of the last of five sermons that that Matthew recorded of Jesus, and they really built his entire gospel around. And according to Jesus, getting into heaven is not about what you did or didn't do, but about your heart, about the how and the why you did or didn't do. This morning, as we consider what Jesus said about the end, I want to invite you to consider what your life as a whole says about the character of your heart and what it might reveal about the vote that Jesus is going to cast on the last day. And this is the only vote that matters because there's only one vote cast. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 25, Matthew chapter 25. Verse 14, if you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, that's found on page 1,541, 1,541, Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. Before I read this, let's, let's just set the context. Jesus has been answering the question since the beginning of chapter four, when will the end come? That's what the disciples wanted to know. How will we know? When's the end going to come? And he began, if, if just by just to remind you, because it's been a few weeks since we had this particular sermon, he began by warning us that the end is going to be delayed, so don't be deceived while you wait. 
And then he went on to explain that since no one knows when the end is going to come, we need to live every day expectantly. But now at the very end of his sermon, he he concludes by explaining that how we live today will determine how we are judged in the end. How we live today will determine how we're judged in the end. And he uses two different parables to, to make that point, which we're going to be looking at this morning. If I could sum it up, it would be this. On the last day, the public proof that you belong in the kingdom rather than outside of the kingdom will be the character of the life you lived. Let me say that again. On the last day, the public proof that you belong in the kingdom rather than outside of the kingdom will be the character of the life that you lived. Now, some of you may be wondering, did all of a sudden Jesus like forget that salvation is by grace, not works is, is, is here at the end. Jesus all of a sudden teaching salvation by works. Not at all. So let me let me put it a different way that maybe will help make this clear. The disciple who is justified by faith in Christ. On the last day will be obvious to everyone. Because of his life. Of faithful love. I'll say that again. Because I think this is just another way of getting at the point that Jesus is making here. The disciple. Who is justified. Who's who's declared not guilty. Who who gets into heaven. Because he was justified by faith. He's going to be obvious to everybody. Because of his lifetime. Of faithful love. That's really the outline of the sermon this morning as we look at these two parables. We're going to look at the faithful disciple in verses 14 to 30. And we're going to look at the loving disciple in verses 31 to 46. The faithful disciple, the loving disciple. Let's start with the faithful disciple. Look at verse 14, Matthew 25, verse 14. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one, he gave five talents of money to another, two talents and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. The man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you were a hard man. 
harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents for everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have even what he has will be taken from him and throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus has just told the disciples in the section right before what I read to be ready to be expectant since when he returns, it'll, it'll be too late to change things. And then he launches into this parable here that I just read very abruptly. I mean, they're not even as many words actually in the original as the, the NIV put in there in verse 14. They're, they're kind of trying to smooth it out. But he, he just dives right in to the parable in order to explain what that day of judgment is going to be like. And what, what Jesus says here is that the day of judgment is going to be a day which reveals whether or not our lives have been characterized by faithfulness. Now, this parable is well known if you've spent any time in the church. The, the, the master gives each of three different servants three various amounts of money. And you, you notice that Jesus says, according to the ability of each. So, so right away, Jesus is letting us know that, that this is a fair master. He's not overburdening anyone. He's not expecting more from anyone than is reasonable for that individual. But nor is he expecting less. So what's Jesus done right here at the beginning of the parable? Well, well, he's letting us know, even before he gets to the punchline, he's letting us know that, that no one's going to be able to say on the last day, hey, that's not fair, God. God, you, you asked too much of me. No, he's letting us know that judgment's not going to be on a curve in which we're compared to each other. No, God's standards are perfect. And he knows how to apply them perfectly to each individual. No one's going to have an advantage on the last day because he was more able than others. No one's going to be disadvantaged on the last day because they were less able than others. We're dealing with a very fair master. So we've got these three servants and three different amounts of money entrusted to them. Now, it's really important at this point, if we're going to understand the parable, to, to, to understand that a talent in this parable is not the way we use the word talent. Uh, we talk about talents and we talk about somebody's skills, their abilities, what they're gifted at. That, that's not what Jesus is talking about here. It's not the way they ever use the word talent. It's a unit of money. That, that's, that's all a talent is. It's, it's a unit of measurement, particularly of money. Now, if you've got an NIV or maybe another English translation that does footnotes, you might have a footnote for, for the talents that, that says a talent was worth more than a thousand dollars. I would say that is a massive understatement. In today's money, one talent would have been worth about $300,000. 
Which means that that, that that first servant who got five talents, he got a million and a half dollars. So don't pity the servant who only got the one talent because he wasn't very able. At $300,000 a talent, these are no ordinary servants. These aren't simple sons. These are not just, you know, I, I don't know, whatever you think of, it's not them, right? These are very capable people. Even if there is some variation amongst their capability. I, I mean, I think you really ought to think of these three servants here more like minority partners in a venture capital firm than anything else. And, and in fact, what the first two servants do with their talents suggests that this idea of a venture capital firm isn't far off. They take their money and they invest it. And they invest it in order to earn a return. They don't go out and put it in the stock market. They, they don't put it in, in, in a bank. This isn't simple interest that they've learned. It's not even compounded interest that they've earned. The, the verb, the particular word that Jesus uses suggests that they took that money and they went out and set up businesses or, or bought businesses and took that capital and put it to work to make more capital. In, in fact, as we see as the parable goes on, they, they earn a 100% return they double their money and some of you financial types are wondering yeah but what was the annualized roi return on investment yeah it just says he was gone a long time so i i don't know what the annualized roi was but let's let's just agree they did really well except for one right not not the one servant the the one with only three hundred thousand dollars he's the servant of least ability but, but it's quite clear as we read the parable, the problem isn't his lesser ability. The problem is he doesn't put the talent to work. He buries it in the ground. Now, now the ground is a, a safe place to put the talent. Uh, in fact, in, in fact, some of the rabbis said the only place, the only safe place to put money was in the ground. Uh, it, it was safe. But it was idle. It wasn't doing anything. It wasn't earning any sort of return at all. When the master finally returns, we see as the parable goes on, it's, it's time to settle accounts. Now, now, what's interesting, there are a lot of interesting things about this parable. But I think one of the things that's interesting is though the first two servants have different amounts, you know, five talents versus two talents. And therefore, uh, different amounts to show at the end, ten talents, four talents. Their rate of return is the same, 100%. And so is their reward. How does the master reward each of those first two servants? Actually, the words that are used are almost exactly the same. On the one hand, he gives them more responsibility. Basically, they get to keep the money and keep using it, right? They get more responsibility. And that makes sense in terms of sort of the economic terms of this story. But he also invites them into your master's happiness, literally your master's joy. Now, the last time I checked, joy is not exactly the reward that venture capitalists are trying to achieve. So when Jesus points to joy in this story, we know he's doing something more than just telling an, a, a story about economics. Right? He, he's talking about the joy of the kingdom of heaven. He, he's talking about the, the, the joy of being brought into the kingdom of God and knowing the perfect joy 
of being in the immediate presence of your master, your king, your God. He's talking really about about blessedness, about receiving and knowing that God approves of you. 100%. That's an incredible reward. The reward of knowing that God approves of you. The, the, the joy of experiencing that approval, that, that blessedness. I wonder what reward you find yourself living for this morning. You know, the world offers lots of rewards. I was just at a conference on work and Christians in the workplace. This is one of the things that we thought about at this conference. Right? The, the world offers all sorts of rewards. The, the, the rewards of wealth, the rewards of, of prestige, the, the, the rewards of the approval of your co-workers, the reward of fame and celebrity, the reward of comfort and ease and convenience. But the reality is any reward that this world gives you will not last. The day is coming that the master is going to come back. There's going to be an accounting. This world is passing away. To work for the rewards of a regime that is dying, falling, and will pass away is surely the height of folly. We want to, to work for, we want to desire, we want to live for a reward that cannot be taken away. The reward that a regime that will never end can give. Friends, that's, that's what's offered here. The reward that Jesus holds out is a reward that cannot be taken away. It cannot be lost. It cannot be used up. It's the reward of complete joy. Peace, satisfaction, fulfillment in God. Because God is completely satisfied and pleased in you. That's the reward that's in view here. So it's a good question to ask, even though it's really not even finally the main point of this parable. Just sort of this far in. It's just a good question to ask. What reward am I living for? Am I living for the right reward? How would I know? Well, as I said, the point of the parable, though, isn't so much the reward. It, it, it's more what they are rewarded for. And what they are rewarded for is their faithfulness. I mean, you see that he, he, he says it twice there in, in verse 21 and again in verse 23. Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. They're rewarded for their faithfulness. So, so, so what does faithfulness mean in, in this context, in the context of this parable? Well, we can certainly think of it as, as using our, our talents, our gifts, our, our abilities. And I, I think, honestly, most of the time you've, you've probably heard this parable taught. That's what's talked about. Your, what are your talents? You know, what are your gifts? What are your abilities? Are you putting to them, them to work? Are, are, are you using them? And that is certainly an appropriate application of this parable. But it's too narrow an application of this parable. We've got to remember that talent in the parable doesn't mean what we mean when we use the word talent. 
What is the talent in the parable? Well, the talent in the parable, this money, is everything that the servants have. God has given them, or the master has given them this incredible, rich gift. And I think that's how we should think of this parable as we apply it to ourselves. We are called as Christians to be faithful, not just with our strengths, not just with our talents in the English sense of the word, not, not just with our gifts and our favorite abilities, our, our top few skills. We're called to be faithful with everything we've been given. In other words, we're called to be faithful with our entire lives. And I think that's the way we should understand the talents here. Because you see, the point isn't so much what they did as as why they didn't. They were rewarded because they were faithful. They were not rewarded because they were successful. They they were not rewarded because they were talented. They, They were not rewarded because they were productive. They weren't rewarded for any of the reasons that we typically think you should be rewarded for. In, in our world, you get rewarded for performance, right? You, you, you get rewarded for accomplishing something. That's not what Jesus says here. He says they were rewarded for their faithfulness. They were rewarded for living as men and women who understand that we are responsible to something else, to someone else, that everything we have is a gift, There's nothing that we can claim as our own. There's nothing that we can claim uh, sort of lordship over. It it all belongs to somebody else. It's all been given to me. And and therefore, my my goal is to please the one who gave it to me. My master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, You can hear that. You can understand that even in the the servant's response when the the master returns. Do, Do you see what they do? They come and, and, and they show, Master, you entrusted me with two talents. Master, you entrusted me with, with five talents. See, I've gained five more. Friends, that's not a prideful, hey, Master, look what I did. No, it's a, it's a desire that the Master, that they love, would be proud of them. Would, would, would take delight in their life and in, in, in what's happened. It, it reminded as I was reading this, I mean, it, it, this morning even, it reminded me of my experience last night when I came home. I was only gone for 36 hours. But I came home and the door was locked and I didn't take keys with me, so I had to ring the doorbell. And, um, and right away, several of my kids, you know, met me at the door. And completely unselfconsciously, they began to tell me uh, about their day. They, they began to tell me about really cool things that they were able to do, uh, cool things that they accomplished, maybe some special thing that happened to them. Now, why were they telling me that? Why were they saying, see, Dad? Were they, were they saying, see, Dad, so that they could earn my love? No. They weren't trying to earn anything. They were saying, see, Dad? Because they know I love them. And they love me. And they wanted the joy of the experience of dad being proud of them, of dad, like being thrilled with 
with the day that they had just had. This is what's going on here. Not, not a not a works righteousness. God loved me because I, I gained five more talents for you. But no, Master, who loves me so well and whom I love, oh, I want you to be proud of me. I want you to take delight in me because I love you. Because I know you love me. Friend, are, are you a faithful disciple? You, you know, that's not, that's not something that can be done at, at the last minute. It's not something that you can hurry up and all of a sudden produce a bunch of faithfulness. No, what, what we're seeing here, I mean, he, Jesus points out the master, the master has gone a long time. We're, we're talking about a, a life of faithfulness. And it's that life of faithfulness that's rewarded. It's not a decision that's rewarded. It's not one moment that's rewarded. And as we were just reflecting on, it's not about duty. It's about love. Jesus is making it really clear here. Faith. Faith that God has loved me in the gospel. Produces faithfulness. Faith produces faithfulness. Because faith understands that we have been loved better than we deserve. Better than we can imagine. And so my life is no longer about me. My life is about pleasing the one that has loved me. Not so that he'll love me. But because he's loved me. If you're here this morning and, and, and you're not a Christian... You won't understand faithfulness, the faithfulness that's that's rewarded at the end, unless you understand faith. Faithfulness cannot be produced without faith. The good news of the gospel is that God loves sinners and that, that he demonstrated that love. By taking on human flesh and living the life in the person of Jesus Christ, living the life that, that we should have lived, but didn't. And then going to the cross with that life and experiencing the judgment that our lives deserve, that his life didn't. And there on the cross, exhausting that judgment, paying the penalty in full so that whoever puts their faith in this Jesus, whoever turns away from their, their fear and their sin and the rebellion, whoever turns away from trying to earn God's love, but instead just begins to trust that I can't earn it, but it's been offered to me in Christ. Oh, that person who begins to, to put their faith in Christ, that person not only finds forgiveness and reconciliation with God, but that person finds a love that begins to produce a life of faithfulness. I would love to talk to you about that more. If that doesn't sound like the Christianity you've heard about, then you've been hearing about a wrong Christianity. If that sounds like something you need, then do not leave today without talking to me or talking to the person you came with or talking to somebody sitting next to you if you came by yourself to know how you could come into an experience of that kind of faith 
and love that would produce in your life a faithfulness that pleases God. Now, as Christians, we need to recognize as we read this parable, we have been given an incredible treasure. We've been given reconciliation with God through the gospel. We've been given eternal life in the gospel. And so we want to spend our lives, right? We, We no longer want to try to hoard our lives for ourselves. We no longer want to try to protect our lives as if it's all up to us. No, we want to spend our lives. We want to risk our lives for God's glory, for his pleasure. But the reality is, you know, we're not all the same. We have different abilities. And and as I look around this room, we are in different seasons of life. But we want to be asking ourselves, what does it look like to be faithful today? I, I think the temptation is often to compare ourselves to others and think, okay, for me to be faithful, I've got to look like him or I've got to look like her. Or sometimes we look back at a previous period of our life And we're discouraged about our life now because we keep thinking, oh, I'm not faithful because I'm not like what I was back then. But but, but the reality is the seasons of life change. Even our abilities change and our opportunities change. So it's not about comparing ourselves to others. It's not about comparing ourselves to a former self. It's about asking, what does it look like to be faithful today? And, you know, what it looks like for a mom of young kids to be faithful today looks different from what it looks like maybe for a teenager to be faithful today. And, of course, that looks different again from what it might look like for a grandparent to be faithful today. Well, what does it look like to be faithful as a single man or a single woman? Well, that that might look a little different than what it looks like to be faithful as a married man or woman, which will look yet different again from what it, looks like to be faithful when at some stage in your life you are single again. But all are able to be faithful. What, what, what does it look like to be faithful in your employment, in your, in your work? What does it look like to be faithful in your unemployment? What does it look like to be faithful in, in retirement? What does it look like to be faithful when you're sick or or disabled? Some of you are at a stage where you're needing to think through, what does it look like to be faithful in poverty? When I just, I don't have enough to make ends meet. Some of you are needing to ask the question, what does it look like to be faithful in abundance, in in more than I need? And a lot of us are are just trying to figure out, what does it look like to be faithful when there just seems to be just, just enough? Not too much, not too little, just just enough. What does faithfulness look like there? Stop looking at the other people that are in a different situation from you and try to think through in my circumstance, in my season of life, in my stage of life, with my opportunities, with my abilities. What does it look like to be faithful? Now, speaking of abilities and talents, we are pretty good at asking ourselves, what does it look like to be faithful, you know, with my my favorite gift? The, the, the gift that everybody recognizes that I have, and they all enjoy it when I use it, and I, and I want to be faithful with that gift. Yeah, but what does it look like to be faithful with your least favorite gift? You know that gift that you've got that everybody says is a gift, but you kind of wish you didn't have it? What does it look like to be faithful with that gift? 
maybe most importantly, what does it look like to be faithful in those areas of life where you don't feel gifted at all? You see what I'm getting at? Our abilities vary. Our, our gifts are different. The seasons and opportunities of life are constantly changing. But none of those things are the point. It's one of the reasons I don't like the spiritual gift tests. Because the spiritual gift tests seem to lead us to believe that the gift is the point. The gift isn't the point. Feel free to use the spiritual gift tests. I'm not, I'm not saying it's, it's wrong to use them. I'm just saying I don't really like them because I think they lead us astray. The point isn't the gift. The point is your life. Your whole life. Where you're gifted and where you're not. And being faithful. Whatever and wherever. Now in contrast, of course, there's this third servant. The, the one who, who buried his talent. And then gave it back to his master. He gave it back to his master. Like there was nothing missing. But it was it was unused. It was it was unimproved. Now, you, you know, right away that the servant knows that there's something wrong, right? He doesn't say, see, master, here's your talent back. Now, he starts differently. The servant. Justifies playing it safe. Based on his fear of his master. He said he says, I, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you've not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. The, the, the language there is actually the, the language used to describe in, in Jesus' day, the language used to describe a moneylender, maybe even better, a loan shark. That, that's, that's what he's saying the master was. Somebody who was unscrupulous, somebody who was greedy, somebody who was gaining profit through interest, which Jewish law forbade. And he says he was afraid. That, that, that's why he did nothing. I was afraid of you, God. I was afraid of you. In other words, he's kind of saying, okay, God, here it is. I'm giving it back to you. But don't blame me that this is all you're getting back. I mean, it's really your fault. Because you're such a bad guy. You're such a hard guy. You're such a scary guy. It's blame shifting. Classic blame shifting. But in fact, that's not the way... God is at all. And all that the servant is doing is betraying his own profound lack of love, even really his hatred for his master. Now, that becomes clear in the master's response. It is stinging. The master doesn't buy the excuse. He calls him lazy. He calls him wicked. And he proves it using the servant's own words. He basically says to him there, if I am what you say I am, he's not agreeing that he is, but he's saying, yeah, yeah. Let's, for the sake of argument, let's just assume it's true. If I am as bad as you say I am, one of those guys that goes out there and charges interests, a, a, a loan shark, then, then why didn't you put my money with the bankers? If that were true, see, you would have gone and put it with the bank. Because you would have known I would have been pleased with the interest. It's a lie, you see, that this servant is given. And not only does the master catch him in his lie, but he exposes the real motive. The servant didn't love the master. The servant loved himself. The master calls him lazy. The, the servant 
was about his own life. He wanted to be free to do his own thing. He didn't want to be responsible to the master. He wanted to go off and and do his own thing. And so playing it safe, basically. Okay, God, I'm I'm going to go do my own thing. I'll, I'll give you my life back at the end. You know, kind of the bare minimum. The judgment of the master is swift and it is fitting. Not only is the talent taken away and given to the faithful servant, but the unfaithful servant is cast out into the darkness where there is weeping and despair, not joy and satisfaction. Jesus really sums it all up there in verse 29. For everyone who has will be given more and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have. Even what he has will be taken from him. In other words, those whose faith, whose, whose love for the master produced lives of faithfulness will actually be given more, more life, abundant life, eternal life. But those whose fear and unbelief, whose hatred for the master produced lives of unfaithfulness, even what they have, their very life will be taken away from them. Friends, there's a warning here. For us, right? Jesus is telling this parable as a warning to his disciples. What does it mean to to bury our talent? Well, it's not simply failing to use your your top three gifts for God. No, it's it's, it's about refusing to to give your life to God. It's it's about refusing to spend your life for God. Instead, spending it on yourself. It's it's about living as if lies about God are true and the truth about God is false. It's about living in fear rather than faith. Fear, like like it did with, with this servant, this unfaithful servant, fear leads us to try to protect ourselves. But the truth is we can't. We cannot protect ourselves from God. Faith leads us to cast ourselves upon God. Faith leads us to trust God in the gospel. And so spend our lives in reckless abandon for him. The reality is we cannot escape the justice of God's judgment. As this parable makes so clear. It's really not about comparing ourselves to others, hoping that we'll turn out to be a little better than the next guy and so get in. No, it's about faith. Because faith produces faithfulness. And fear, which leads me to compare myself to others, fear produces hiding. On the last day, God will not simply point to whether you broke this rule or that rule. And he will not much care whether or not you can say, but I prayed a prayer or I signed a card or I walked an aisle. No, all he's going to need to do is look at your life. The whole of your life. And it's there that the evidence of saving faith. Or the evidence of its lack. Will be abundantly obvious and clear for everyone to see. Now, that leads us second to to the character or or, or maybe even better that the content of faithfulness. If 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 on the last day, the the evidence that we belong in the kingdom rather than outside of the kingdom is going to be the evidence of a faithful life. well, Well, what's the content of that faithfulness? 
And friends, the content of that faithfulness is love. The faithful disciple is the disciple who loves. Look at verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance. The kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When when did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed. Into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply. I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Jesus concludes the sermon with a description of judgment day itself. As the messianic and divine son of man, he says that he is going to come back in glory heavenly glory and sit on the throne as both judge and king and all the nations will be gathered before him it is an extraordinary vision it 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 staggers the mind all of the nations all of the people who ever lived there are like seven billion people on the planet today that's a lot of people it's hard for me to even get that many people in my head but i mean think about it just today i mean people are being born today and people are dying today That 7 billion isn't static. Now stretch that out over the entire history of the human race. It is a massive number. And Jesus is clear they will all be there. Every last human soul. Now to help us grasp the scene though. He kind of immediately brings us down from that amazing vision of cosmic glory and judgment to a very familiar scene, at least for the people that were standing there in front of him. The scene of a, of a shepherd separating out, separating out the sheep and the goats in, in the flock. Everybody listening to Jesus would have understood it. It was something that Palestinian shepherds did almost every night. But unlike separating sheep and goats, which you pretty much do just by looking at them, you know, the goats are kind of shaggy and they got horns and that the sheep have woolly, curly hair. And, you know, it's pretty obvious. Jesus explains that the, the basis for distinguishing the human sheep and the human goats isn't external appearance. Rather, it's love for Christ. 
The sheep are welcomed into the kingdom because they loved and served the king. I mean, he, he just can't be more clear there. He said they fed and clothed him. They visited him. They befriended him when he was in need. Now, of course, the sheep respond in utter disbelief. I mean, when, when, when did we ever see you in any of these ways, Jesus, and, and love you like that? And his answer is both shocking and painfully clear. They did this for the king. They showed their love for the king when they did it for what Jesus calls the least of these my brothers. That, that is to say his his disciples. Someone to make the least the poor in general, just all poor, whether they believe in Jesus or not. Uh, dispensationalism often associates the least here in this parable with the Jewish and Gentile believers that are left after the church has been raptured. But I don't think the rapture is in view here. I, I think the last day is in view here, the, the final judgment. And, and when you read the pronouns that Jesus is using there, the way the way we normally read pronouns, I think it's very clear that these brothers of mine refer to the sheep standing right there in front of him. Whenever you loved these brothers, these, these sheep, you loved me. Now, this isn't a new idea. Jesus has already introduced this idea back in Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, one of the earlier sermons that we looked at when he said, he who receives you, my disciples that I'm sending out into the world, he who receives you receives me. And he's going to say it again. He's going to say something very similar to Paul on the Damascus road when he says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Not the church, not the Christians in Damascus, not the Christians in Jerusalem. Why do you persecute me? Jesus Christ identifies with his sheep. He identifies with us in, in our sorrows, in our trials, in our sufferings, especially. And he, he so identifies with his sheep that he says to love my people, to love my, my sheep. To love me, to, to, to serve my people, to serve my sheep is to serve me. So how do we show the world that, that we love Jesus? Well, we, we demonstrate it by loving those that he identifies with. Now, now again, th- th- does this mean that Jesus is teaching that, that we're saved by our loving good deeds towards Christians? Not at all. No more than in the previous parable that he was teaching that we were saved by our faithfulness. The question here is not the cause of our salvation. The cause, the ground of our salvation is the cross of Jesus Christ and our trusting in the cross solely. Now, this isn't about the cause of our salvation. This is about the evidence of our salvation. How do you tell the difference between sheep and goats? How's God going to tell the difference between sheep and goats? How how are they recognized? How are they distinguished? Is it because God keeps a a card file up there of of all all the decision cards we sign down here on earth? I don't think so. Is it because there's this there's there's this checklist and and just whenever a prayer is prayed, he like checks it off. He's got a record of the prayer and he just knows everybody who, who prayed that prayer of decision. Well, not according to this parable. No, 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 they're recognized. By their love for the king. And their love for the king is recognized because they loved 
the people that the king identifies with. What did Jesus say in John 13, verse 35? By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. It turns out that faith is not this private thing between me and Jesus. Faith has a public character to it. And that public character, that, 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 that evidence that anybody and everybody can see is love for one another. Now, by contrast, the, the goats are rejected. Why are they rejected? They're rejected because they failed to love the king. And the reason Jesus knows that they failed to love the king is because they failed to love the king's people. In fact, it's, it's not just a failure to love. It's really a hatred, isn't it? You, you knew I was in prison. You knew I was sick. You, you saw that I was thirsty. You saw that I was hungry. And you refused to love me in those points of need. An active rejection of the king by an active rejection of the king's people. It, 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 it's fascinating that both the, the sheep and the goats are, are kind of surprised. Whoa, Lord, wh- wh- when did this happen? It's not so much that they're surprised at the judgment. It's not so much that they're surprised that they're being called sheep and goats. It's that they're surprised at the reason, the evidence that the king is bringing for the judgment that he's made. Now, on the one hand, I think that proves that what is in view here is not salvation by works. If if the sheep had thought that salvation came by works, then they would not have been surprised when Jesus brings out good works as the evidence that they belong to the kingdom. They would have said, yep, that's what we thought all along. And so, of course, we know we know we're in because we did it. No, they weren't thinking that. So they're they're very surprised helps us know that Jesus is not talking about how we're saved, but the evidence that we're saved. On the other hand, the real point of the surprise, I think, is that in the end. The true nature of the heart will always be revealed, will always be revealed, you know, lip service for God. Which many people in this world give lip service of love for God. Is easy. But such lip service will never be long inconvenienced or burdened for others in this life. Genuine love for God will always display itself in a genuine love for God's people. We can fool ourselves and we can easily fool others, but we will not fool God. A life of love for God's people. And this is really important. Not people in general. Not not people in the abstract, but a life of love for God's people, a life that is willing to associate with those whom the world rejects because they have associated with Jesus. A, A life that is willing to be spent on behalf of those who cannot repay you simply because they belong to Jesus. This is what a faithful life looks like. This is what a life looks like that's been captured by the gospel, a life that loves the king because they understand how much they've been loved by the king. It's not something we can do in an instant. It's not something that we can say, oh, I checked that one off. It's not something that we can manufacture at the last minute. It is the character of a lifetime lived in love with God through the gospel of Jesus Christ, overflowing In love for God's people. Now, I'm not saying that you can't be converted on your deathbed. That's really just not even view here. 
what Jesus is talking about is if, if, if God gives you even one breath longer, what are you going to do with it? A life that's been captured by the love of God will show itself in love. So, Christian, are you concerned for your fellow Christians? Or is Christianity more of a just me and Jesus thing for you? Jesus says there's no such thing. To love him is to love your brother, is to love the least of your brothers. So there are many questions that you just need to ask yourself here. In, 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 in your world, in your sphere, who's the least? Right? It, it, it's, it's easy to love. For me as the pastor, uh, here's, here's a true confession. For me as the pastor, some of you are easier to love than others. It, that's just the way it is. And I know that the same is true for you. For you as members of this church, some of your fellow members are easier to love than others. Who's the hardest to love? Who, who, who's the least of your brothers or sisters in this congregation? Are you loving them? How, how does your love show itself? I, I think it's got to start with just this idea of membership, this idea of saying, hey, I want to be known as someone who's committed to loving the other sheep here, and I want you to hold me accountable to that. I don't want to be able to just come and go anonymously. But I understand that displaying my faith is about living out Love for one another. And that's only going to happen in a context of commitment to one another. But of course, it doesn't stop there. Notice how, how practical this is. Seeing a need and meeting it. Just a practical need. Jesus uses the imagery of, of being naked and needing clothes or being hungry and needing to be fed, being thirsty and needing a drink, being sick or in prison and being visited. Now, some of those things continue to be common to our experience here in America. Some of them don't as much. But, but I think about uh, the, the ministry of our brother Robert Kelly going into prisons to share the love of the gospel of Jesus Christ and to encourage brothers who are already there, brothers who are in prison. And that's a real practical way of displaying our love for the king. That doesn't mean all of you have to take a prison ministry, though some of you maybe should. But what would it look like for you? I know it will inconvenience you. Loving one another practically is never convenient. It's hard enough just to get through your own day. I want to encourage you, though. Give yourself to loving your fellow Christians here in this church. Not as a mere duty. That's just dead works. But as an expression of love. If you're not a Christian, you need to take Jesus' warning seriously here. The distinction that he will make on the last day will be final. Life and death here, eternal life, eternal punishment, are paralleled both as eternal when, when, when jesus talks about something being eternal he's not talking about it just just for this age or or any age he's talking about the messianic age an age that has no end 
Maybe you're holding out that, that God is the, the God of the second chance, that, that, that after death you'll, you'll have a second chance. It's a nice idea. It's not what Jesus said. It's not what Jesus said. Friends, today is the day. Today is the day to deal with Jesus. And know that Jesus is ready to deal with you in love. He is able to change your heart so that it turns away from the narrow self-love that characterizes our life outside of Christ and transform it to a love for the king that overflows to love for the king's people. Who's going to get in in the end? Not the person who simply puts up the biggest numbers. The only one who gets a vote is God. And he tells us he's prepared a kingdom. He's prepared a kingdom not for good people, not for religious people, but for disciples. Followers of Jesus Christ whose trust in him, whose faith in him overflows in lives of faithful love. What does your life Reveal about the state of your heart. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us eyes to see clearly our own hearts. We pray that we would not be deceived that we would not be deceived into thinking that anything other than a life of love could serve as evidence for the incredible love that you shower in the gospel. Lord, we pray that you would help us not only to not be self-deceived, but Father, we pray that you would help us to be encouraged, to understand that your grace, your love actually is changing us. So that on the last day, when the secrets of all the hearts are laid bare, it will genuinely be obvious. Obvious not that we're better than others, but obvious that we were transformed by your grace obvious that we belong in your kingdom. Lord, we pray that we would live for that reward and none other. In Christ's name, amen.